Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan with the Hindu in Chennai, your host for today. The World Health Organization is facing its biggest ever crisis with questions over its role in handling the COVID-19 pandemic. The United States has said it will cut funding for the WHO, while many other countries are calling for reforms. Is the criticism of the WHO justified, and where does it go from here? Helping us make sense of these questions is Shashi Tharoor, Member of Parliament from Tiruvannandapuram, who spent 30 years working at the United Nations, rising to the position of Under Secretary General. Thank you so much, Dr. Tharoor, for joining us uh, on the Hindu In Focus podcast today. We're very happy Pleasure. to have your insights. Uh, if I can begin by asking you, you're someone who spent a lot of time with the UN system. How big is the current challenge WHO is facing? It has faced questions in the past over how it handled Ebola, for instance, but is this something that is unprecedented for the organization? Yeah, actually, you know, by and large, the consensus was that Ebola was largely successful. Um, there were some deaths, but it, the illness was contained to the region where it originated. Here you've got a, an unprecedented challenge. Uh, WHO was established in 1948, and there hasn't been a worldwide pandemic like this with this kind of uh, devastation uh, that, that has come um, across its its path, as far as I'm aware. Yes, there was, of course, the so-called Hong Kong flu and the Russian flu, which took a heavy toll for a brief period of time, but again, in a more limited area. Um, but something like this is calamitously uh, challenging for the WHO. And then the decision of the United States to withhold funding at this peak time, uh, the U.S. contributes something like 17% of WHO's budget. So that's a pretty substantial sum of money that's suddenly going to disappear from WHO's kitty. Uh, all of that, I think, adds to the challenges it's facing. What's your impression of the criticism that's come, uh, especially from Washington, in terms of uh, the idea that the WHO was slow off the mark? Uh, there have been questions in terms of its initial advisories, but the other argument is even after the WHO warned countries, they were slow to react. So what's your reading of, of is it more... Donald Trump trying to scapegoat the WHO, or is there a kernel of truth in what he's saying? No, I, I really think uh, that, that Mr. Trump is honestly um, uh, <laughs> trying to find the scapegoat for his own administration's failings uh, in, in uh, preparing America sooner for what has turned out to be the, the biggest public health emergency they've ever had. Uh, the fact is that um, if, if you look at what WHO did or didn't do, uh, one can certainly accept the charge that they were uh, too willing to give China a free pass at the beginning of the crisis. Uh, I think they made some wrong calls on the coronavirus. For example, the um, the statement on the 14th of January uh, doubting any human-to-human transmission, which is at least three weeks out of date. Um, and, of course, uh, the Americans are quite bugged that they continue um, blocking participation by Taiwan, which... Um, uh, Honestly, I don't think it's easy to blame the WHO for this. One of the institutional challenges for any United Nations body is that it tends to be beholden to its most powerful member states. The UN itself, in many ways, uh, reflects the, the dominance of certain countries, particularly of the Security Council. That's simply the way in which uh, an organization of member states is structured. We are a mirror of the world. We, we reflect 
um, the, the inequalities and, and power structures in the globe itself. So for any international organization to just openly start doubting or questioning assurances given by a major and powerful member state um, would be a challenge at the best of times. I'm not saying that um, that the WHO covered itself with glory in these three, uh, in these two issues, particularly the early um, comfort levels with Chinese and some of their statements um, before they finally, on March 11th, declared a pandemic. The statements in, in January were, were perhaps a little weak. By the end of January, they began to get a little more uh, urgent in their warnings. In February, pretty much all they said, I think, was was pretty reasonable. Uh, but but they were obviously deferential to a powerful member state. And uh, I'm afraid the problem is if this thing had started in the U.S., they'd have probably been deferential to the U.S. too. The difference is that the U.S. being a democracy with a free press would not have found it so easy to suppress the kind of details that are only now emerging um, from China. I mean, it's just shocking that yesterday the Chinese doubled uh, the death rate in Wuhan. Uh, because it was getting impossible to conceal the fact that their numbers were lies. Now, the truth is that uh, if you have to blame somebody, you should blame Beijing for having done the wrong thing, tried to suppress the news, tried to conceal the information, tried to poo-poo this, taken no effective steps at the beginning to prevent the virus spreading, and then misled the WHO rather than blaming the WHO principally for merely mirroring what the Chinese were saying. Isn't it the case that WHO and, in fact, most UN agencies are to a high degree reliant on the information they receive from member states? So, exactly. in a sense, they could not evaluate what the, the wrong information that they were getting from Wuhan. So, in that sense, is that just a part and parcel of how the WHO and UN agencies function? And are we, are we blaming <laughs> the wrong person here? Well, no, I'll tell you, one or two things the WHO could have done. But one first thing, of course, they didn't send experts uh, to Wuhan at the very beginning. As soon as the first news was announced by the Chinese on the 31st of December, there should have been a WHO delegation on the plane of experts to look at and get an independent view. That wasn't there. So they were relying only on the Chinese view. I think that's something you can blame the WHO for. And the second thing is, of course, the, um, the fact that the, the, they continued for a few weeks to take a very relaxed line saying no need for travel restrictions and it's not as bad and there's no human to human transmission relaying uh, the Chinese uh, assurances um, uh, frankly as if as if they they didn't need to be questioned independently I mean I, I think we have a, a, a sort of constitutional problem with all the UN agencies that the head of the agency who is elected after all by powerful member states support or with the support of powerful member states, uh, does not enjoy the independence and autonomy that should come with the position of that stature. Uh, if we were, for example, to adopt a policy of a single non-renewable term, maybe for six or seven years rather than two terms of five, which is the normal practice, then we might actually give the, the, the leader the authority to take uh, uh, certain independent actions. Nonetheless, don't forget the UN is not larger or more powerful than its member states. Had WHO wanted to send a team, and for whatever reason the Chinese refused to give them a visa, they couldn't have gone. So that too is something we have to bear in mind. The UN system is not a supranational body. It is an international body. It connects nation states who are sovereign. And um, uh, just as uh, Israel denied a UN team access to the occupied territories, 
India has refused permission uh, uh, to some UN uh, observers to go to Kashmir and so on. Uh, countries have the right to do that. So we we can say that WHO should at least have, have proposed it, and the world would have drawn conclusions if China had had rejected a visa. Uh, but but the WHO wasn't taking initi enough initiative initially. Uh, I would still say that the principal fault is with Beijing and not WHO, which is still a body that is dependent on member states. Reports have said that the, the WHO in the initial phases actually did want to send a team to Wuhan, but I think they were told they weren't able to. In such a case, is there a different strategy they could have employed? Some people have drawn a comparison with how Dr. Groharlem Brundtland handled China during the SARS epidemic, where they were more vocal and actually pressuring Beijing. But then you're, we're also dealing with a, with a very different Beijing right here. So is there something different that the Director General, Dr. Tedros, who is facing a lot of the heat, uh, could have done in perhaps using more sticks and less carrots in how he dealt with Beijing? Well, look, I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, that, that uh, Dr. Brundtland, who was not elected by Chinese support, had a different attitude to this than Dr. Tedros, who was very much a China-backed candidate for the post. Secondly, and not just backed by China, backed by India too, and many of the developing countries backed him. Uh, but, but certainly, so the attitude is different. Uh, Dr. Brundtland, having been a former prime minister and a world leader of some heft and a former head of the Brundtland Commission and all of that, she had a certain independent stature, which gave her independence. And in any case, she wasn't interested in seeking re-election uh, after SARS. So she just uh, uh, said her thing and, 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 and stood up for it. So uh, it's a difficult comparison to make to a first-term director general of the WHO, who is himself uh, from the developing world, and 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 you can say he was unduly deferential uh, to one of his most powerful member states. Arguably, uh, in any list of the top two or three most powerful influential states in the WHO, China would figure. So, in these circumstances, I think um, uh, one has to be. We are all members of the every country. We're, we India is a member of every UN body, and and every country knows the way in which these bodies work. The governments of the world actually want the UN and its agencies to be beholden to governments for the most part. And then when the um, when the uh, they fail to assert enough independence and autonomy, uh, the same governments uh, start making the agencies a scapegoat. Uh, in fact, when I was at the UN, my then boss Kofi Annan, the Secretary General would often jokingly say that the initials SG, by which we used to call him, because we couldn't anymore call him by his first name, when we call him SG, he said, yeah, yeah, I know what that stands for, scapegoat. And that really was what, <laughs> what often happened. So where do we go from here? Let, me, let, let me add one point, if I may. I, mean, I think right. it's, sure. there is no doubt that, that in the... Um, uh, in the um, uh, you know, I, I, I co-authored a book in January for the New World Disorder with uh, Samir Saran, the president of one of the think tanks in Delhi in the ORF. And what we argued was that um, uh, international institutions are indeed uh, waning in legitimacy because they suffer from politicization, manipulation, lack of uh, independent leadership, lack of representation and purpose. And I'm sorry to say that uh, seeing this happening and also seeing another trend that we highlighted, the resurgence of nationalism sweeping the world, um, has, been, has been pretty dismaying. I mean, had global governance been working effectively as it should have been, the world would have identified the coronavirus as soon as it emerged. 
uh, WHO would have sounded a global alarm earlier about its dangers. And of course, the world collectively would have identified and publicized the best practices that should have been adopted by all countries to prevent or limit its spread. That this did not happen is a damning indictment, not so much of WHO alone, but as of all our sovereign states and the state of our new world disorder. Uh, and I certainly hope that one of the lessons we learn from this setback is um, that when the pandemic is over, we have to sit down and say, how can we strengthen international systems and institutions and reform them radically as necessary in order to forestall another global tragedy of this magnitude? So in terms of which impulse we are going to be driven in in terms of this pandemic, on the one hand, it is forcing countries to turn inward. This nationalism that you mentioned is growing. But on the other hand, there is also an awareness of the limitations of how global institutions are functioning. In your assessment, in these two opposite directions, which way are we likely to go? Well, I mean, the signs, and I, I mentioned this in the book as well, uh, the signs are indeed for a resurgence of national sovereignty. We're seeing more and more ethno-nationalist populism and, and the wave of nationalism that that uh, many countries have been riding, certainly including Xi Jinping's China, Putin's Russia, Trump's America, Modi's India, and of course, Brexit's Britain. Uh, all of this, uh, in addition to many, many European countries facing the same thing, suggests that, um, that, that we will actually go in the wrong direction, that we are likely to throw up more barriers uh, and, and creates more nationalist um, uh, defiant sovereignties. Uh, I believe that's the wrong way to go. I, I genuinely believe that um, globalization cannot be completely unrolled, that uh, we must, India must play a role in defying the impulse to close countries off to the international community. We need to create a new ethic and resolve for global governance. We have to recognize that if WHO had limitations, these are limitations that governments have imposed upon it. And if governments actually were to draw from this the conclusion that we actually need institutions with greater independence in all our collective interests, maybe we can reform these institutions to give them that independence. In particular, if we elect WHO heads who are, who are able to challenge uh, countries, who are able, for example, as a, as a matter of authority, to be able to go and see for themselves independently if the assurances they're getting from governments are indeed valid or not. I mean, all of these things require a certain amount of, uh, of uh, shall we say, I can't say surrender of sovereignty, but a certain dilution of national government's prerogatives. Um, and, and that's something which governments have proved reluctant to do. I hope that a country like India will be a sane voice for this. And, you know, even Brexit Britain has announced that it's going to give an additional 65 million pounds to WHO because of the Americans pulling out. I thought that was a, a fine gesture. So you, you're seeing that some countries are rallying, rallying around. Um, the Chinese inevitably have hinted that uh, they too will increase their funding to WHO to compensate partly for the Americans. But the Chinese, unfortunately, seem to pay, uh, seem to demand that others pay a price for their generosity, which silence uh, for Chinese misdemeanors. So Pakistan remains quiet on Uyghur Muslims being mistreated because of the $65 billion China is pouring into Pakistan under the Belt and Road Initiative, the highway to Qatar. And, and uh, I'm sure that you won't find Italy and Spain saying anything nasty about China with all the medics and PPE equipment and medicines coming in to those countries from China. 
So these are the kinds of realities of international geopolitics that we simply cannot overlook. What would your advice be to India in terms of how it should push for changes in the WHO? You've mentioned the way the director general functions. Are there other tangible reforms that India should be pushing for at this moment? I think strengthening, strengthening the autonomy of these institutions uh, is independent, is, is important, and that's how the independence of the head of the institution uh, and thereby by extension of the institution itself becomes a key factor. The second is certainly um, a, a, a preparation um, to um, cede a certain authority that, yes, a government may provide its own views to WHO, but if WHO independently decides that they want to verify things for themselves, that governments, uh, as, price, as the price of being a member of the WHO, the government should not have the authority to deny a visa, for example, or travel permission to the WHO, uh, this sort of thing. That, um, that, yes, I have heard the story that you mentioned, that China did block um, a WHO delegation from visiting Wuhan in the first weeks of the coronavirus, and that Dr. Tedros had to fly to Beijing uh, to negotiate access. Um, uh, but you know, at the same time, it's also true that WHO took the Chinese position um, that travel restrictions are ineffective and, and need not be imposed and so on, at a time when the only restrictions would have been against China, so China would have been the victim of such restrictions. Um, all I can say is, Governments are going to have to show a certain degree of greater statesmanship uh, if you're going to expect um, uh, these organizations to be effective in a way that no organization dependent upon member states can be expected to be beyond the point. If we can come back to your home state of Kerala, it's been a shining example for the rest of India in terms of how it's been handling this pandemic. A lot of the recommendations that we've been seeing globally of how countries like Singapore and South Korea have been handling the pandemic might not be all that relevant for countries in the global south that face, for example, constraints in how they can test. What do you think the lesson of Kerala offers, especially to the global south, in terms of how it's handled the events so far? Well, it's a lesson that has to be applied over the longer term because Kerala's success, to be very honest, has been built up over a certain period of time. The Kerala model is not an overnight thing. I, I wrote nearly a quarter of a century ago in my book, India from Midnight to the Millennium, about what I call the Malayali miracle. And that was uh, a miracle of a state that had successfully emphasized already by then over many years uh, what we were just beginning to call human development, spending large proportions of its resources on healthcare and public education, promoting literacy, in fact, uh, the highest literacy rate in India, uh, women's empowerment, high level of welfare support for the indigent and the marginalized. Uh, by the late 90s, we were already clear people didn't beg or starve in Kerala. They could be lepers, they could be alcoholics, they could be unemployed, but they weren't begging or starving. The state could take care of them. And this is uh, the fact that, um, that Kerala systematically, and all Kerala governments, uh, the communists as well as the Congress and the socialist governments, uh, which have alternated uh, over the last 70-odd um, years of our democracy, and even some of the monarchies before, the, the monarchies of Travancore and Cochin, had a very enlightened and progressive attitude to social welfare. Uh, the, the Trivandrum General Hospital, I think, is 150 years old, uh, built very much uh, under the Maharaja. So we're talking about uh, a, a culture, not just a few institutions or a few uh, 
uh, or a few governments or a few uh, fund allocations and, and the budget. We're talking about an entire culture built up over, over years and decades, which may take decades again to replicate elsewhere, uh, that actually says we want the social development indicators of the developed world, even while living as a developing country. I mean, the closest analogy outside India would probably be Cuba. Um, uh, but but uh, uh, the difference is that in Kerala, this has happened in a democracy uh, without the sort of tyranny of one-party rule as in Cuba, without the lack of freedoms. In fact, the Kerala press is vibrant and free, and the people know that. And so the fact that the press will question things and will not hesitate to challenge the government um, uh, is something that actually breeds more confidence uh, in, in institutions and in practices. And so um, all I can say is that what Kerala did is uh, the result of, of generations uh, built up, and particularly, I would say, the last 50 years or so of very effective social reforms. But um, it can be replicated if there is a very serious effort uh, to start with to reallocate spending priorities of India's governments. Uh, if, 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 if uh, you know, the entire... Uh, government of India spends 1.28% of GDP on public health. That is a, a shamefully low percentage. Uh, we, we, could, we could multiply that by four and still not have reached uh, a, a decent quality of public health care for the majority of our people. And that's without worrying about an a pandemic or even a major epidemic. Kerala was able to deploy 30,000 health workers as soon as the, um, the virus uh, broke out. It, it was quick and aggressive to conduct widespread testing. Um, it's, uh, it's got, uh, as of 14th of April, the last number I saw was 450 people per million had been tested, uh, whereas um, Bengal had only tested 32 per million, and the Indian average is still under 200 per million. So we're looking at, um, we're still looking at, uh, at, um, at, as a state that was uh, way ahead of the rest of the country in getting, in getting things done. Uh, on top of that, um, uh, the tracing that they had to do, the thorough and painstaking tracing of any person that the afflicted have come into contact with was done very, very ably. And then they, they offered compassion and treatment for the stricken. I remember seeing a, a sort of a video on social media of two policemen doing shopping for somebody who was stuck in home quarantine and had nobody in their family to, to, to uh, purchase essential uh, survival rations for. I mean, the entire institutional machinery is built on the premise that we exist to serve the people. We're not the lords and masters of the people. We serve the people. And that, I think, is, is really quite remarkable. Okay, Kerala was the first to institute a three-week quarantine for suspected cases, um, the first to make provision for migrant workers stranded by the sudden nationwide shutdown who needed shelter and food, the first to arrange these community kitchens with lacks of cooked meals for the hungry, uh, it's just, it really has been um, um, uh, proactive in a very, very impressive way. And I, I say this as an opposition MP. Um, there may be things we have, we will reproach the government for. There's currently a controversy going on in Kerala about the government having entrusted all the healthcare data of the Kerala public to an American company uh, with a U.S. server, uh, which, which probably is the kind of thing the government should have, uh, should have thought better of doing. But having said that, when you look at Kerala, a densely populated state that receives more than a million foreign tourists a year, I think it sends out the largest proportion of its people abroad, of any state in India, but 17% of the population of Kerala are working or living outside Kerala. Uh, 
So, I mean, you're looking at a state which is simply completely wide open to influence connection, foreigners, travelers, uh, expatriates, etc. Hundreds of Kerala students also studying abroad who came back. The first three cases were actually medical students, Malayali medical students from Wuhan, China. So Kerala ought to have been more vulnerable than most, but it came through with flying colors because of this approach. Really is a lesson for the rest of the country. Thank you so much, Dr. Tharoor, for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Anantha.